are speaking with Tamara Nelson, Executive Director with the Minnesota Agri-Growth Council. This is part two of our two-part series on international trade. It seems like a metric that the current administration really places a large focus on, at least out in the general public, is our trade surplus versus deficit with a certain country. Is this really a good measure? You mentioned comparative advantage before, but uh, Mm -hmm. surplus and deficit just seems like a very simplistic view of a very complex concept. That is so true and and very accurate. Uh, It's one of those things that people feel is bad. If they see a large trade deficit with a country, they assume we're exporting jobs there. Last I checked, you can't export jobs just because you trade with someone. You can export jobs because you have too high regulations here or because you don't have the workforce in the location it's needed here or because you have so many other jobs that might be more appealing to a person um, like a white collar service job might be more appealing to some college educated individuals than a manufacturing job but you know on balance we're all buying many things at least pre-covid lots of people were buying many things they had they had their jobs they had their big houses and just like china may have customers that are have a panache for buying things from the us or europe us consumers are no different they love to buy things that are you know have some kind of a status symbol for them be it a bmw or a porsche or a fancy coffee maker from Europe. But similarly, they have a side of them where they love a bargain and they love an opportunity to celebrate. And so the the options to buy things from China uh, over the past 20 years, especially, you know, toys and small manufactured goods and, and electronics and anything like that, for someone kind of looking for that bargain or looking that opportunity to, to celebrate Easter with a pretty silk flag hanging off your door, Americans love that, you know? And so we were buying many, many things from China and was our, um, and, and also many um, more resource-based uh, purchases from China. Uh, we don't take a lot of land uh, in this country out of production or out of forestry and put it into, you know, basic resources that we might be purchasing from a nation like China that has a lot of open space that you can't till. So we had, yes, a growing trade deficit with China. Um, Is that necessarily bad? Well, like you mentioned, not really. It's just an indication that your folks are buying a lot of certain goods or services from China. That, you know, if you want to have those kinds of jobs in your country, making toys or uh, small handcraft, things like that, you have to look at your own nation's history and say, you know, what toy makers do we have and why are they out of business? Or what, you know, uh, small, fine needlepoint clothing factories do, did we have and are they now out of business? And you have to ask yourself, do you really have people that still want to work in that industry in this country? Because if you don't, then it really doesn't matter if you do it here because maybe that person has a job that they want to do more, that they like better, um, 
where they don't want to work in a clothing factory, for example. Instead, they want to work in a bank. That's a consumer choice. That's not the government exporting a job. So it's important always to consider comparative advantage uh, what a nation has the capability to do. And then if you can if you can buy something from another country that you know you either don't produce here or you don't really have a priority to produce, like coffee or orange juice or pineapple, that's okay. That's okay to bring it from another country. Maybe their land is, is better suited to grow it there. Maybe their workforce space is better suited to produce it. And, and that's okay. Well, speaking of imports and exports, I, I heard in the background just a little bit ago a, a bunch of geese. There wasn't a part of the USMCA that included importing more Canadian geese, was there? <laughs> that is a great question. I was wondering if you could hear the geese. You know, no, thank heavens, because Canadian Canada geese can be a kind of an uh, obnoxious intruder in many parts of the United States. Um, but there is also an interesting aspect of that agreement that is important to note here, because I think many, especially in Minnesota, are familiar with the uh, avian influenza outbreak that was here about three, four years ago. And, you know, the way that the disease traveled was flocks that migrate. And I believe there's one that kind of comes down from Canada. And then there's one birds that come up from Mexico and, you know, the butterflies go back and forth. And there was apparently a meeting, not an official meeting, but just a meeting of wildlife in California where the strain of avian influenza started to move. And then it traveled back into uh, Minnesota, um, either on geese or on swans. And so one of the things that the USMCA does, just like other trade agreements, is once you have that in place and you have those relationships established, when it comes to dealing with a an outbreak, whether it's an animal disease outbreak or a human disease outbreak like COVID-19, the better your relationships and your processes with your neighbors, the better you are able to track and trace and control the spread, uh, whether it's of a disease or of a virus. So that's one kind of one part of, of, a, of an agreement like USMCA that you don't hear very much about in the news, but it is something that that relationship uh, truly offers our country is that ability to work with your neighbors. Well, it certainly pays to uh, keep friendly relations with, with other foreign countries. But one thing that doesn't do that, I would assume, is tariffs. Now, President Trump has not been too shy to slap tariffs on some of our largest trade partners. What's your view on the role of tariffs when it comes to international trade? You know, uh, had you asked me that five years ago, uh, I would have I would have continued to talk about the Smoot-Hawley tariffs of the 1920s. And, you know, I think it was the 20s. But, you know, basically a, a kind of a gut reaction to a trade issue or a foreign competition issue where, you know, the country puts tariffs on imports and then you hope somehow things are magically going to get better, either with your own production or your own markets. And tariffs, to me, should always be a last resort and they should not be like unilaterally applied across the whole world. They sh It should be considered with economic studies on that industry here in the U.S. to say, you know, are tariffs against China right now the right move for this product? And so maybe a tactical or a strategic threat 
rather than just a wholesale, we're going to apply uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum because our industries are suffering. You know, our industries might be suffering for a whole different reason uh, than that particular country or its policies, but it certainly um, is suffering if it was maybe from one or two key competitors, not from the whole world of producers. And when you when you put tariffs on, like unilaterally on that, you're hugely affecting many small, medium, mom and pop shop industries across the nation that depend on perhaps that cheaper or different style of aluminum or steel. You you can't assume that you're not going to harm just as many people, if not more, than you help um, through those tariffs. And so to me, they should be a last resort. Um, and I've always felt that way for many years. Now, I started out by saying, had you asked me five years ago, if you ask me today, I would probably give a little bit more credit um, to the administration and say, okay, you know, something had to be done and to sort of bump this, bump some of these trade discussions forward. And so since we had tariffs on Russian steel, I believe, under the George W. Bush administration, it has happened before, it will happen again, but it is not typically the best way to start. And in fact, I believe that when the pages have turned and more analysts have written about the long-term impacts of the uh, steel and aluminum tariffs on the United States and on small to medium-sized manufacturing, it will be much higher penalties uh, were suffered by our economy than were gained. And thinking about tariffs and how they operate, again, we talk about slapping tariffs on foreign countries, but ultimately we're slapping tariffs on foreign companies that are not, in most cases, owned by said countries. So really, I think a lot of people don't fully understand or or know that aspect of how tariffs work. That's exactly right. And, you know, I I had some great analogies for how I explained this to people when it all first started, but it's kind of a tax, if you will. So, you know, it's one thing if you have, and most people don't like taxes, right? So it's one thing if you have let's say a tax on a certain type of alcohol or cigarette or anything uh, in a municipality, you know, maybe you're going to have a higher tax on cigarettes in Minneapolis or something because you want, um, you want to reduce childhood or other consumption of, of tobacco products because you believe it will reduce your healthcare costs longer term. Okay, that's typically called a syntax. Um, so you're taxing something you, you kind of want people to do less of. Um, there's also um, taxes where they will tax things that people like that are okay. Um, uh, resort taxes, airplane, uh, airport taxes. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like a, oh, goody, people like to travel or like to go to hotels or like to eat out. Here's an easy place for us to have a higher tax rate, and therefore we will get tax revenue so we can improve infrastructure, whatever. But a tariff is so random, and and you're right, it does hit companies, and it it hits small companies and medium-sized companies really hard. 
So imagine you're a small precision metal working place. Um, maybe you make special tools and dies for the automobile manufacturing industry or something. And suddenly the price of your input is 25% higher. Or maybe you can't get the input at all because of the tariffs. And so your your seller, whether it be a good partner like Canada or South Korea, is selling it to someone else at a better price than they can get from you now. That makes all of your costs go up. And we talked to people across Wisconsin, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, and there were so many small and medium-sized family companies that could not afford you know, such a shift in their supply chain. Now, many of them eventually figured it all out just in time to be hit by COVID. But my classic example is there is a, I think the last American maker of kegs in the U.S., I think north of Philadelphia. Now, there might be new ones since then, but uh, I think kegs are primarily made of steel and aluminum. Was really going to be going out of business because of the tariffs. I don't think that was the intention of the steel and aluminum tariffs, but whoever is making the policy decision has to realize the implications for small and medium-sized companies when they do that, because it might be a small and medium-sized company here, right here in the U.S. It might be a small or medium-sized company over in Europe. Either way, you're now reducing the ability of any of that person or their employees buying a product from the United States or any of our other trading partners again, and therefore you're kind of reducing the, the value in the economy or maybe the ability to spend more than you would have without those tariffs. Now, a tariff is just one of a couple different options, I guess, for protectionism that countries use to protect you know, some type of domestic market. However, if you're kind of listening to the political debate or the political discussion today's America, it's not just Donald Trump that has taken a more critical view of trade. There are both right. voices on the left and the right who are looking to become what seems like more protectionist. What signal, if any, does this send then to the rest of the world if we do start to pull back on our free trade approach? Mm -hmm. And that's a great question. And, you know, my years are working in, in trade agreements and I guess kind of being product of, you know, grandfathers and in some cases fathers that fought through, or great-grandfathers even, fought through the World War One and World War Two, which... You know, yes, there were political reasons behind those wars, just as there was in Korea. But ultimately, it comes down to economics. I mean, somebody wants something that somebody else has. <laughs> and you can argue whether or not it was yours 200 years ago or just since last week. In the end, when people are gainfully employed, able to purchase the basic needs that they, they want or need, and then have some, maybe some spare money for the, the fun stuff, the celebrations, the family time, the vacations. You don't see a lot of, if, if the whole world is in that state, you don't see many conflict. You don't see many wars. You don't see ongoing battles. Um, that is a lesson we learned from World War, watching World War I and World War II unfold and all the economic and social things that led up to that. When we all came together afterwards and the nations developed a monetary system, a trading system, 
a rules-based system, you had peace. You had 60 years, more or less, of relative peace, at least from a global sense. If everybody pulls back from that now, you will start to see either bilateral or regional approaches. And I think that the basic philosophy of trying to work on a multilateral basis was if you have 146 countries in the WTO and they all agree that X is how we're going to behave, and then you have maybe a bad actor, maybe your bad actor is China, maybe it's Russia, maybe it's the Middle East somewhere, those other 145 countries carry a lot of weight. And when you go into the negotiating room, if you all say, look, China or Russia or Middle East, we need you to, we need you to abide by the rules. Otherwise, you know, we're not going to be able to offer you the same favorable trading agreement we always have. That's always been our philosophy that that is kind of the, since World War II, that's how we keep things at peace. That's how we keep the economies growing. That's how we keep um, social upheaval to a minimum. Are there some flaws with that uh, strategy or maybe with some of the tactics employed along the way? I'm sure there's always things we can improve upon, but it worked pretty darn well. And so if we see people pulling away from that and trying to go on their own, I would predict a much more disrupted politically and socially and then economically, but certainly also in their militarily, you will see more debates and more battles and probably more military conflict because you don't have the rules of the game set by everybody who agreed. Yeah, and I think that's an important point to make. You're much less likely to bomb another country that you're working with. I can't help right. but think I can't help but think uh, of a, a recent book that I read, "Disunited Nations" by Peter Zeehan. It does just yes. a fantastic job. Highly recommend it for all the listeners out there. If you are interested in what a world where America starts to pull back might look like, yeah, and I have a couple of copies uh, because Peter sent us a few because we've had him as a speaker at our AgriGrowth Summit. And so I think I have about 10, if any of your listeners would be eagerly interested to have them get in touch with you or me, and I can get them a copy. It's a very interesting book. But you obviously have an extensive background working in in international trade deals. And you've mentioned, you've alluded to it a little bit earlier on, but how long of a process does it really take to go from the initial talks between countries to really crossing that line and, and signing the deal? Yeah, it can it can be a really long process. You know, in the in the general agreement on tariffs and trade, which was sort of the economic platform that was put together after the after the uh, World War II, um, we had multiple rounds, and typically they would go every ten years. Now, oftentimes they were named for the place they were hosted, like there was a Tokyo round, but then there was the Kennedy round, which was named for President Kennedy. So uh, we had most recently would have been the Doha round, and that was really an effort to kind of show the developing nations and the rapidly developing nations, the big ones like Brazil and India and China, that we are all better off being in this kind of a, uh, we at least know how to play by the same rule book um, system. 
typically 10 years, but with the, um, probably the 1999 meeting in Seattle and then Doha after that, um, we didn't actually progress beyond the Uruguay round of the GATT agreement, which was, I believe, signed in 1994. So we actually, ne- we came to agreements, but they never got everybody to sign on. So the actual advancement in being able to trade more freely and with better certainty across borders has not progressed since 1994, unless you've done it either through your own regional or bilateral agreement, or perhaps because uh, a large company operates in the U.S. and in those other countries, they use the same rules. They automatically will typically apply the same rules to themselves in a foreign country that they do in the U.S. So we we have kind of had, well, we're going up on, we've got 20 years, more than 20 years of not really progressing in terms of global uh, trade standards. Uh, The projection with either the Seattle round or the Doha round was that commodity prices would increase by at least 20% if you had a new global agreement in place. And I think that was before the Doha round. So you can imagine the possibilities of, of economic growth, of peaceful trade between nations of perhaps even higher prices for farm commodities had we had some successes there. But just like the United States questioning certain agreements that we already have, we had a lot of challenges kind of trying to bring India and Brazil and China and others into the fold. So you still have some barriers there definitely to trade. But again, some of it has progressed on its own just simply because, you know, you want to you want to play in the same series or you want to trade with other nations. And if everybody's asking for a certain standard, you typically have to meet it. So I think we've definitely could have gained more during this time, but we did gain some, which I guess is good. Now, obviously, negotiating with other countries, everybody has kind of their own sets of demand. Then there's the the fact that there's different cultures at play. How do these differences within cultures impact ultimately the outcome of these trade deals? When we were first informed, I will say, uh, how to negotiate with the Chinese or even to go uh, visit China many years ago and in Japan as well, we were always cautioned to not ever be an agreement where you would make the other party lose face. And so sometimes it would even be, you know, you you talk about things and you get them agreed to kind of quietly. And then when you both presented the successful agreement at the end, you wouldn't shout over here too much about the progress you made, for example, getting beef or pork into Japan because you knew that was sensitive in their country. And oftentimes you'd see, you know, somewhat different announcements coming out in each country And that was okay because it took, you know, three and a half weeks for a communique to make it in the newspaper or it would take a really long time for the um, journalist to to write the comprehensive piece on the agreement. And so, you know, sometimes people would see, oh, there was an agreement. Okay, it looks like trade's going to grow between our nations. They would sort of forget about it. Now, with this 24-hour news cycle and more of a willingness to sort of slap people around, including that that even comes now at us from other countries. It's very difficult to consider, 
you know, the possibility of a global trade agreement being done at all in the way it used to be. You know, people would complain about it being closed doors or secret. Nobody would know what they were doing, WTO, this, and in Geneva, and all a big secret. And I would always say to people, that is absolutely not true. We we were a small nonprofit in Washington, D.C. with only two staff people, and we were at every single one of those meetings we wanted to be at. You just have to apply to go in and you, you know, and you have working groups in your own country you can be part of. And, but, you know, most people thought it was a big secret. And so that was something that was damaging to process. I think now, you know, maybe a different format that might be able to be used, even given cultural differences or different negotiating styles, might be um, something that, you know, the software industry or the te- a lot of technology industries and some even in, in patents uses, which is like more of a crowdsourcing kind of a discussion or, uh, you know, kind of a town hall discussion where you're kind of providing public information to people as you go along. And then therefore you're kind of raising their comfort level with it. The problem again there is that is not universally acceptable to all cultures. (laughs) Many cultures, you know, truly like a process of explaining something to their people um, or explaining in a certain way. And the U.S. style news cycle does not contribute to the acceptance of the agreement or the trade within their country. So I think it, it's going to take us a while to figure out what this new method might be. But there are just classic examples. There's lots of good books on um, global negotiating strategies that I think have accurately described, you know, kind of how negotiations have occurred perhaps over the last 50 years. But I think once you got to about 10 years ago with more of a modern news cycle, it's been shifting so rapidly in every country from the U.S. to Brazil to China to India that I don't think anybody really knows right now what the best format is for achieving a multilateral agreement. Because I think we've tossed out, you know, parts of the United Nations, of NATO, of the WTO, and and we haven't really settled on what the solution part is yet. A lot is to be decided, I guess, on that front. But is there any final comments you'd like to make just on trade in general? Or or maybe there's something that we haven't quite covered in this interview? I guess I think just for for the listeners, you know, people still ask me, well, you know, it sounds like you're kind of negative about everything that's happened in trade. Is there anything that that's good that's happened? I guess the good thing would be, I don't think there's anybody in the United States, at least, that hasn't heard about trade in the last three years. And so, you know, as something that maybe it's still not uniformly understood, but at least people have heard a lot about trade and they've heard a lot about trade agreements. Um, and I guess that's a good thing and that's worth worthwhile mentioning. But what is also truly important is that when you inject nationalism into an economy or into trade discussions if if people don't have a concept of what happened leading up to world war one and two they need to go back and read their history books because once you inject nationalism into decision making such that it affects your economic choices you run a grave risk of severely damaging your own economy, especially if 
if you're one like the U.S. that uh, that trades so much. Um, but you also run the risk of causing you know severe and long-term damage to international relations. And let's face it, we're all sharing the same planet. We're all using the same resources. And we need to have, yes, carrots and sticks that can allow you to coax a bad actor into doing the right thing, whether it's for the trade standards or whether it's for the environment. Typically, if not always, nationalism is not the solution to that. No country does everything perfectly. We can all learn from each other. And if you think about the fact that 95% of the world's population lives outside of the United States and that we produce more of most things than we need, it would behoove us to always be thinking about what our customers might like to purchase from us and not how we can make it all ourselves. Because even if we can make everything we need ourselves, we are only 300 and some million people. We are not the billions that are out there eagerly awaiting the opportunity to buy something made in the USA. Well, Tamara, it's been great having you today. If somebody's listening along and wants to get a hold of you or wants more information on agrogrowth, how can they go about doing that? Sure. Uh, www.agrigrowth.org. And they can find us there. And if they can't find my email, they will find a way to contact us at the bottom of the, in the contact section. And um, we'd love to hear from them. I, I do still give uh, presentations on trade along with colleagues at the uh, Department of Ag and elsewhere. So always happy to do that. If someone has a need in their community or at their company, we are delighted to do that or to help them find someone that they would like to hear from. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for taking some time and enlightening us on this very important topic today. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate it. That is Tamara Nelson, Executive Director of the Minnesota Agrogrowth Council. That's going to do it for us on this episode of the Rural Perspectives Podcast, which is a production of Egg Country Farm Credit Services. To get more great content, please visit www.eggcountry.com.